Well, good morning. Welcome to Solid Rock. If you're new or visiting and we haven't met, welcome. We're happy to have you with us today. We are going to continue reading the text that we started last week in Mark chapter 7. But before we get there, if you've been paying attention at all over the past couple of weeks, you have likely been reminded, as I have, that personal conflict and tension surrounding issues of religion and race is still one of the great challenges that we face as the human race, but also one of the great challenges we face as the church. So maybe your mind, when we begin this conversation, maybe your mind is going to a new viral ad campaign, or maybe your mind is going in a different direction and your thoughts are taken to an official statement that was recently released by a religious group signed by many religious leaders. Wherever your mind goes when this conversation begins, that tension, that conflict surrounding some of these issues is no surprise. And as we look at the life and as we listen to the teachings of Jesus, I think we are constantly reminded that there is much work to do on this front. There is much room for improvement in the church. There's also a lot of improvement in our own lives. Mark chapter 7, which we started reading last week, I think highlights some of this for us. So remember, at the beginning of chapter 7, we read about that showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, which ended with Jesus sort of subverting some of those dietary restrictions of the Jewish law. And he did so by declaring, look, it isn't what we consume that makes us unclean, but rather what comes out of us makes us unclean because what comes out of us reveals the evil in each of our hearts. And so right on the heels of that discussion, we read this beginning in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he could not be hidden. So from that place of conflict with the religious leaders at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus attempts to now get some alone time. He departed and went down to the or went up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was an ancient Phoenician port city located in modern-day Lebanon. And when he arrives, he goes into a house there and he seems to be trying to escape people for a while. Now maybe this was a result of needing some time to recharge after that heated exchange from the first part of the chapter, or maybe some other conflict that Mark doesn't tell us about. Or perhaps this is just a matter of his routine, of getting away from the crowds and spending time alone. Whatever the case may be, it is a consistent pattern that we see in the life of Jesus, and I think it reveals a lot. This may seem like an insignificant detail that is easy to breeze past without giving any focused reflection, but I think at least one of the things that this small detail does for us is we are able to discover that even Jesus seems to have understood the absolute necessity of moving into times of solitude in order to rest 
to recharge spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. Now, we're not going to focus on this detail too much this morning as we are going to be spending about five weeks later this fall talking about the importance of Sabbath and rest as a spiritual discipline. But I do think we need to at least briefly mention this today because at the beginning of this story, we find Jesus withdrawing. It says he went away and he seeks some solitude. He enters this house, and he doesn't want anyone to know where he is. Have you ever felt that? Some of you who are a bit more introverted may be thinking, yes, I feel that every single day of my life. In fact, I'm feeling it right now. I wish we could just wrap this up so I could go sit in my car for a while. When I worked as a a tour director, There were days that we spent eight to ten hours traveling by train. Now, if you've ever spent a prolonged period of time traveling by train, you know that your options are limited when it comes to escaping the folks on your train car. So I was just stuck there with these 40 to 50 guests that I had spent every hour of every day for the past week with. And on those trips, I would often reach my limit And I would just begin searching the train for an empty train car where my guests couldn't find me just for a few minutes with some hopes of finding some rejuvenation. So if you've ever felt that, or if you feel bad about feeling that, be encouraged that Jesus had similar moments as well. But unfortunately for him, at least on this occasion, his escape plans were unsuccessful. We read this in verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So while Jesus is trying to get away and remain undetected in this house, Privacy is interrupted by a woman who bursts in with a request for healing for her daughter who is apparently demonized. She is possessed in some way by an unclean spirit. Now we don't know exactly what that meant for this woman and her family. We don't know the nature of the unclean spirit tormenting this young girl, but I think one thing we can ascertain with a relative degree of certainty based on the context of the story is that what this family was experiencing was quite traumatic and quite possibly damaging and destructive. Maybe you remember that story that's told in Luke chapter 9 where the disciples are unable to help out that father whose son had an unclean spirit. So the father, sort of this last resort, goes to Jesus, and he's terrified that at some point the boy's convulsions are going to get so bad that they will throw him into a fire and he would be completely destroyed. So if we could begin to realize how destructive this girl's condition might have been, I think we begin at least to understand the urgency with which her mom approaches Jesus. The language that is used here gives us this sense that as soon as the woman finds out Jesus is there, and as soon as she realizes what he is potentially capable of, she bursts into the room. 
She falls at the feet of Jesus. And she literally begins begging Jesus to act on her behalf and do something miraculous. This is a dramatic scene, to be sure. And that drama is only amplified when we realize how bold this move was on the woman's part. It was bold. It was, it was unexpected and maybe a bit uncalled for or inappropriate for several reasons. I mean, we could begin with the woman's gender. In the cultural setting of this story, that fact alone puts her at a tremendous disadvantage and perhaps culturally speaking, it should have prevented this presumptuous encounter from taking place to begin with. Furthermore, this woman was a Gentile, which carried both religious and cultural significance. And then Mark narrows that point a little further when he describes a Syrophoenician woman, which points to this woman's ethnicity. In fact, Matthew's version of the same story refers to her as a Canaanite, which likely, of course, stirred even more emotions and uh, more of that latent animosity between the two groups. And if all of that wasn't enough, finally we are told that her kid has a demon. So in that situation, I mean, In that culture, the situation was was bleak. She was, in every sense of the word, unclean from a Jewish perspective. I mean, the strikes against her that Mark is pointing us to just keep adding up. And yet, she is desperate enough to ignore all of those red flags that reasonably should have prevented her from even thinking about going to such lengths. Maybe she's tried everything else. Maybe she's attempted the cultic practices of her religion and found them completely unhelpful. I mean, her child is still suffering. But she hears about this man named Jesus, who is said to have cured individuals with all kinds of spiritual and physical illnesses. So so maybe he could help my daughter as well. I mean, she has to give it a shot. She has no other options and So she takes this big risk, goes in, falls at the feet of Jesus, and begs him. And this is the response we get. We would think with somebody begging at the feet of Jesus that he would be moved by compassion and act on her behalf. But this is the response we get. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Throw it to the dogs. Now Matthew tells us that not only did the disciples try to convince Jesus to get rid of her and send her away, but the response from Jesus seems just as harsh. He responds in Matthew by saying, I'm sorry, but I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And here in Mark, that thought continues, let the children be fed first. What's that a reference to? Well, It's a reference to Israel. I I can't take the bread that is intended to be fed to the children of Israel and feed it to the dogs. Wow. That's a little unexpected from Jesus and might be uncomfortable to read. And sure, Jesus makes provision for the Gentile woman to be fed, so to speak, but only after Israel. Not, Not right now. 
But even that provision doesn't soften the impact of his rather insulting reference to a dog. That seems pretty strange from the mouth of Jesus. I mean, we we see Paul say something similar in Philippians chapter 3 when he warns the believers in Philippi to beware of those dogs that, that are trying to destroy their faith. But that's Paul. Maybe we've grown to expect something like that from the Apostle Paul, but not Jesus. I mean, the term dog was intentionally derogatory or at the very least a dismissive term that carried some hostile ethnic and religious overtones. So what is Jesus using this term in reference to this woman, even if it is in a roundabout way? Now, some try to soften the impact of this seemingly derogatory statement by saying, well, you have to understand the context. This specific term used in this context was more in line with a house pet rather than a a street dog. So it's actually an endearing term. Either way, it's a little bit difficult to spin this in a positive light, right? Now, others completely disregard this statement altogether, saying, well, Jesus couldn't have said this. It doesn't fit in with his character. So we just take it out of our scriptures. We see the Jesus seminar doing this with this particular statement. Now, others will say, no, it belongs in our scriptures. It's a part of the gospels. Jesus said it, but it reveals that Jesus wasn't perfect after all. He misses the mark here morally, and this woman has to come in and correct him. Now, personally, I don't think that is a faithful conclusion, as it denies the perfection of Christ. Christ was tempted in every way we are. Yes, he he suffered as we do. He experienced weakness, and yet we believe in line with Orthodox Christian thought that he lived a sinless life. Making an insensitive or condemning statement like the one we find here makes that affirmation of the sinlessness of Christ problematic. So, So what do we do with this? Well, I think it's possible, and I want to argue, that it's possible to understand this episode as an intentional and even a prophetic teaching moment where Jesus comes in and subverts some of those ethnic and religious prejudices at work among his people. He sort of throws this woman an underhanded softball, so to speak, and just lets her obliterate it to dramatically prove his point. Because this is how the woman responds in verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So Jesus, the one who is always foiling the rhetorical plans of others through his quick and poignant responses to their verbal challenges, here he seems to be caught a little bit and maybe even seems to be backpedaling or appears to change his mind mid-argument. But the question I want to raise is, is it possible that this is precisely what he was setting her up for and hoping that she would do? The woman approaches Jesus, begs for his attention and healing care. He ignores her. He dismisses her, reminds her that his people have often throughout their history viewed her people as dogs. 
He ignores her, disregards her, and refuses to do anything to help. But she persists. And in so doing, she demonstrates tremendous desperation and great faith and proves the point Jesus is wanting to make for him, and he heals her daughter. I mean, what a turn of events we read about here. Now let's consider the significance of what's going on and the point being made. Keep in mind that Jesus was a descendant, or Jesus came into the world through the line of David. Matthew makes that clear at the beginning of his gospel in the genealogy he provides. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago as we went through the David narrative, which begins with the unconditional covenant that Yahweh would make David's house or would make David a line that would last forever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the perfect king that David was never able to be. So we think of David as this quintessential warrior king who is mighty and powerful and able to overcome enemies using force to accomplish anything set before him. And Jesus comes as the new David. So keep that in mind. Number two, furthermore, some have suggested that the very name Jesus comes into play in understanding some of the intricacies of this story. So remember, Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And what do we know about Joshua? Well, for starters, and probably most importantly for our purposes this morning, Joshua led the people of Israel in conquest over the Canaanites, where the goal was complete obliteration of an entire group of people. And remember, Matthew, in his version of this story, intentionally identifies this woman as what? As a Canaanite. So Jesus can be seen not only as the new David, but perhaps also the new Joshua. And in this story, we then have the new Joshua coming face to face with a Canaanite. And we as a reader are left with the question, well, what's Jesus going to do? Is the animosity still the focal point of the relationship? Does that ethnically charged past still shape the future for Jesus? Is he going to despise her and dismiss this descendant of Israel's enemies? And at the outset, it appears as though that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. It appears as though he still carries some of those assumptions. He says, no, the children. Israel needs to be fed, not the dogs. You have your needs? Well, that's great, but I have come to meet the needs of Israel, not the Canaanite dogs. Now, this sounds incredibly offensive to us, but probably wasn't that surprising considering the history of these two people groups. I doubt this woman was caught off guard by what was occurring, but again, the question is, is it possible that Jesus is up to something else? And again, tossing her that softball, allowing her to do the work of revealing some of the terrible assumptions at work in their ethnic and religious differences, and he moves on and heals her daughter. And in that healing, we see Jesus once again breaking down some of those walls that were built centuries before. 
In reflecting on this story, Greg Boyd encourages us to remember that there was a no-mercy policy when it came to Joshua's interactions with the Canaanites. The thought was, we are going to destroy them all. We're going to wipe them off the face of this earth. And in this story, Jesus is face-to-face with the Canaanite, but he subverts that no-mercy rule and extends mercy to this historic enemy and even gives her the upper hand in the situation. She is given the opportunity to, quote-unquote, win this rhetorical duel just as I believe Jesus wanted her to. Because Jesus is love and mercy and hope and healing not just for the children, but also for those that the children consider to be dogs. He's love and mercy and hope and healing, not just for the children, but those that any culture considers to be undesirables or those that any culture simply dismisses. And in this prophetic action, I believe it is a prophetic action of healing for the Canaanite woman's daughters, we once again see the reconciliation that is at the heart of the gospel. That is that Christ not only reconciles us to himself, Christ also reconciles us to our fellow human beings. And we are left to do the the, the difficult work of figuring out what this might mean for us today. And I think for us, we could begin at least with considering the ethnic, the racial, and even the religious divisions that have torn humans apart for centuries. And we confess as we read this story that those divisions have no place in the lives of those who follow Jesus. He reconciles us to one another. And so as followers of Jesus, when we think about racial tensions, we have no option but to denounce and repent of prejudice. Prejudice is against any group of people. And so we repent of racism. We repent of racial prejudice and actions and attitudes that marginalize other groups of people. We want to see reconciliation in our relationships. We long for that deeply. We long for racial reconciliation, and there is work to do on that front. I think there's always work on that front. Derek Vreeland, who is a pastor at a church in St. Joseph, argues that as long as we are engulfed in pride, and as long as we are bound by this idea that we are right, all of our conflicts, personal and systemic conflicts, they're always going to remain in this state of stalemate. We're never going to be able to move past that state of stalemate as long as we are proud and convinced that we are right. He goes on to say this, there, there can be no reconciliation without humility. Reconciliation requires forgiveness Forgiveness requires truth-telling. Truth-telling requires humility. Now, what does this mean for us? I think tension surrounding issues of race has to be up there for us to at least consider. And I think this is especially important for us as a predominantly white congregation. And that's no surprise, right? Just look around. We are a predominantly white congregation in a predominantly white city. So what do we do? How does this work progress for us? I I think there are at least a few very simple, practical ways forward. 
And by the way, these practical steps are not steps that I have come up with, but steps that I am trying, trying to learn from minority church leaders who probably understand better than I do what the path forward might look like in this conversation. In particular, in this case, much of what I want to share in the next few moments is from Rich Villadas, a pastor out of New York. And this list isn't exhaustive, but it is at least a good beginning place. And it doesn't begin with just spewing vitriol about our opinion. I think that's a lot of times where we begin. That's not where this process begins for us as the church. It begins with lament and repentance. We lament and we repent of the racism that has defined a good portion of our history, and to be honest, hasn't been absent from the church, but unfortunately, a lot of times has been perpetuated by the Christian church. And so we repent of that corporately. We also repent, though, of racist attitudes or prejudiced attitudes on a personal level that we see in our own hearts. And by the way, when the conversation goes here, I think there's probably room for all of us to repent of these prejudices because, you know, racism isn't just a problem between white folks and people of color. There are a lot of races that, that have been hurt by prejudice and racist attitudes. So we all have the work of asking the Holy Spirit to reveal ways in which we have been prejudiced and when we are convicted, we repent of that sin. It is sin, and we repent. Number two, I think we also listen to the voices of minorities. Maybe as the majority, we don't have to set the terms of this conversation. And I think this is actually something that shouldn't be all that difficult or a foreign concept for the church. Because we can just look at our great theologians from the past. Here's some simple historical realities that I think would serve us well as the church to remember. Just four names. And this isn't an exhaustive list either, but four names. Cyril of, uh, of Alexandria. Augustine of Hippo. Origen. Athanasius. If you're unfamiliar with church history, these are some of the heavy hitters from the early church, right? And these were African individuals. So some of the most foundational and important theology that was done in the early church, we're, we're talking about theological work that is enduring and continues to shape and influence the church in untold ways today. Much of it came not, not from Europe, but from Africa. I think simply understanding our own history in that light is a significant step for us to take. And then finally, this is one other thing that Pastor Rich says to keep in mind. The fact that diversity, while good and desirable, diversity alone falls short of the Christian ideal of reconciliation. Because when we're talking about the Christian ideal of reconciliation, we're not just talking about the presence of diverse people and diverse voices, but we're talking about loving communion with other people of various racial ethnic and cultural backgrounds gathered under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we aren't pursuing colorblindness. We aren't pursuing ethnic blindness or cultural blindness or ability blindness, which is an idea that we're going to explore in more detail next week. 
No, what we are pursuing, what we are striving for is what Revelation 7 depicts. A unified people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne of Christ. Amen. Amen. And there's still much work to do. But I think it's something we must be committed to because we follow a Jesus who denounced prejudice in this way and prophetic acts like the one that we've read today. And in so doing, he once again powerfully demonstrates the absolute necessity of reconciliation. It is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Austin Fisher, who pastors a church in Texas, said this, In Christ, God is drawing all creation toward himself, which means we're also being drawn towards one another. So we could think of that centripetal force drawing people in towards Christ. And as we are drawn towards Christ, by necessity, we are drawn to others who are being drawn towards Christ. He went on to say, so don't fight the gravity of reconciliation. You'll lose. Amen. Don't fight the gravity of reconciliation. You will lose. Would you stand this morning? We are going to join together. We're going to gather around the table of our Lord Jesus Christ which is a powerful symbol, a demonstration of the fact that we are reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, but as we gather around this table, we are also reconciled to one another. We are being drawn to Christ. We are being drawn to one another. By way of invitation, I want to read a section from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Amen. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we are reconciled to you, you would reconcile us to one another. Would you join us at the table this morning?